Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group. In this podcast, I ask supply chain innovators, implementers, and influencers, how do we as business managers and owners in Australia today build modern, sustainable, and resilient supply chains? Especially given we are facing the three Ds, rapid digitalization of our businesses to keep up with our peers, the race to decarbonisation by 2050, and we're managing the ongoing disruptions, including industry disruptions, product innovations, climate disasters, pandemics, global inflation, transport interruptions, geopolitics, the list goes on. So how do we build modern, sustainable supply chains in such an environment? My guest today will help us. He's a well-known innovator, influencer, and implementer. It's my amigo and long-time associate, Paul Hodson. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Great to be with you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Uh, look, many of you know Paul, but for those who, who don't, let me try to do his CV some justice. Paul is a respected speaker, commentator, and specialist in economic development, business innovation, and renewable energy. He is the interim CEO of the Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre bid for round 24, and there's been some good news about that. We'll talk about it probably. He's the chair of Queensland Manufacturing Institute. We'll talk about that too. He's an honorary fellow and a founding member of the Global Entrepreneurship Institute. Interesting. He's a member of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's Low Emission Technology and Services Working Group. And best of all, probably his greatest achievement, he is the industry commentator and he's my co-host on the monthly AI Group Net Zero for Business podcast, What on Earth? He's a dad, he's a football fan, he's a world traveller, and he's a damn good fellow to have a coffee and a steak with. Is that the best intro I've ever done for you, Paul? Uh, that's the best intro that anyone's ever done for me, James. <laughs> so, Did I leave anything out? Uh, probably. Um, and uh, but but look, uh, I I uh, I do get involved in a lot of things. Um, curiosity killed the cat, but I'm still going. Yeah, uh, that one of those overachievers that we talk about. Hey, before we start, I should uh, also just take a moment now, seeing this is the first episode of 2023, uh, to thank all of you for your comments and your support and your feedback since we launched Supply Circles. The feedback's been terrific. I got a great bit of feedback from Texas, United States this morning. Hello, Cade and your team. Uh, they're talking about sustainability and they listen to the podcast from Australia, so that's nice. Uh, if you have any ideas for the show or if you just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at james.scotland, one T, same as the country, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or uh, on my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. Paul, I wanted to get your thoughts today on the hydrogen industry in Australia and especially the supply chain implications. Uh, And seeing as that you're the chair of Queensland Manufacturing Institute, maybe we can also talk about manufacturing. But let's start at the beginning. You've been involved in economic development for decades. In fact, you and I worked in in a sort of small part of that in in government for a while. what is economic development and how does that help business in Australia? Um, that's a really good question, James. I mean, um, decades. Yes, it has been decades. Um, but uh, I think two, not too many. I won't make you too old. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, been, it's been a while. Um, and look, I mean, I've come at economic development for, 
from lots of different angles. But it really, it's it's bringing together, you know, kind of assets and uh, and and capabilities and building assets and capabilities um, across um, a region or a cluster or an industry um, to to really capture the ep- the economic opportunity that can come from market opportunities. Um, so globally, uh, regionally, uh, nationally, um, and really where people see that economic development come alive is in things like investment, um, in terms of jobs, um, in terms of enterprise revenue, um, and ultimately in terms of profitability as well. Um, so that economic side, but it also has a very strong social contribution. Not everything that we do that has value as humans uh, ends up in the, the economic side of things. There's a lot of volunteering. Uh, there's a lot of bartering. Uh, there's a lot of social cohesion, which is actually really important as well, and livability and amenity uh, that goes into making our communities strong. Um, and that's probably off the cuff what I would say is economic development. Uh, but it has a lot of aspects to it, but it's not the sort of thing you do on your own. Um, my career has been about trying to bring diverse groups of people together uh, to create more value than they could individually create. Um, and uh, and I think that's a really important part of economic development. Oh, that's a good answer. It's almost like economic development is a sort of a macro supply chain because in supply chain you're trying to bring diverse sectors together in order to create efficiency. And, and also in supply chain and in, as you said, economic development, there's a social aspect to it. Uh, business is social. It's social people but it's also society. We, we can only sell uh, into our, the society that exists. Uh, so, yeah, so you, you raised a couple of good points. In the last few years, though, you've turned your economic development hat to uh, the post-carbon economy. The, the, what are we going to be like when we get to the, uh, the, the post-carbon era? Uh, and, uh, and you've been quite vocal in this. Um, many people are saying that we're now in, the net, in, a, in a race to net zero in Australia because 2050 is not far away. Uh, and I know that you've said the best way to lose weight is to give yourself a lot of time if you have to do it in a short period of time at it hurts, and that's where we're up to with the race to net zero. Seeing as we're starting 2030, where are we at, Paul? Uh, are we on track? Are, are we going to achieve our goals? Is the economic development goals in place? Just give me a bit of a feel of, of where we're at in the net zero question or the post-carbon question. Look, it's been a, uh, it's been a fraught question in Australia and, and look globally as well. I mean, I don't think Australia is the only ones, but – uh, certainly, the domestic debate uh, around climate change and around energy has been uh, a pretty toxic one at times. Um, uh, a decade ago, I was working for the climate change minister as a senior advisor, and it'd be fair to say uh, there's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of misinformation um, and a lot of um, uh, a lot of sl- sliding around what are we what are we supposed to be doing with this. Um, I try to always try to make, I'm a simple person, so I try to look at it quite simply and strategically. And I look at it and I go, well, look, Australia um, is, uh, it's the 13th largest economy in the world. Um, It's been very carbon dependent. Uh, We are the world's largest LNG exporter. We're one of the largest exporters of coal. Uh, We've got a very uh, uh, cold, we've coal and partially gas dependent electricity sector. Um, and we've done very well out of that. Um, a lot of our industry has been built over the decades on the back of cheap, reliable, 
um, low-cost energy, um, but that energy had high emissions attached to it. Um, Australia is a still pretty small part of the world, though, and Australia has built a lot of its success off of international markets, uh, international trade, uh, international investment, uh, inbound uh, skilled migration, um, and 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 more broadly migration, which has actually helped grow Australia and grow our economy as well. Um, and so there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is to sort of say, well, look, how does Australia decarbonize? How does Australia get to net zero with its own scope one and scope two emissions? So its operations, uh, how we work, a lot of that is uh, easier through the, uh, the, the electricity sector. Um, we have vast amounts of solar. Um, I suspect we're the largest, we've got the largest amount of solar radiation uh, of any country on earth. Um, maybe there are one or two in the Middle East um, that might uh, that might get there, but because of our large land mass, because of our position, uh, we get huge amounts of solar. It's actually 58 million petajoules, according to Geoscience Australia, of solar radiation hits Australia each year. Um, just uh, because that's a difficult figure to digest, um, all the coal and gas that we produce each year in Australia is about 20,000 petajoules. Uh, so 58. And what was the solar? 58. Wow. 58 million. 58 million. 58 million. Yeah. Compared to 20,000. Now, I'm not suggesting for any, uh, in any way that we can capture that 58 million petajoules of solar, but it's a huge resource. And we haven't looked at our renewable resources the way we look at gas and coal and iron ore. Uh, we haven't got to that level. I suspect of maturity um, and of uh, and of a stable value chain and supply chain connected everything up to be able to bring that to market or a substantial part of it to market in a similar way uh, to the way we have with other resources. Um, and so that's the domestic one. Uh, we are on track. Uh, the, the new Australian government last year uh, changed the uh, decarbonisation target or the emission reduction target to 43% by 2030. Um, there's still people that will say that's too slow. Um, some of the other states, uh, uh, the other governments in Australia have now come out with things like 85% by 2035. So the ambition is increasing all the time to do more uh, uh, around reducing emissions quickly. Um, but the other challenge, the other opportunity, I think, for Australia is because we're so internationally focused, uh, we are a large uh, LNG exporter, we're a large coal exporter, we're a large iron ore exporter, we export agricultural produce. Uh, we have huge amounts of international students returning to Australia. Education is our largest service sector. Uh, tourism and others, we actually have very strong connections with the rest of the world. Uh, and this uh, and net zero is a global problem. So Australia, given its resources um, and its capability, its research, um, its infrastructure, has the, the potential to create huge amounts of economic development and prosperity for Australia by manufacturing here, uh, by converting some of those renewable resources into more value-added products and services, and by helping the rest of the world to decarbonise as well. Um, so it's not just uh, what do we do in Australia to decarbonise, but actually how can we position ourselves to do more of the world's heavy lifting and benefit from that in terms of jobs, investment, enterprise revenue, profitability, um, and you know, future economic and social prosperity for Australians. 
This seems to be the current conversation, which I really like, which is this is not, this doesn't have to be a political or emotional issue. This is a cold, hard business opportunities sitting there right for us and Australia is poised to grab those for a number of reasons, many of which you mentioned. The other thing that's in our favour is that um, I read in the last couple of days that coal has become our largest export. Uh, either I think both, people will correct me, uh, both on terms of tonnage of coal exported uh, and the price because of the Ukraine crisis, uh, it's replacing iron ore as our biggest export. And that means we have an opportunity for to use the money we're making from that to develop this other industry, uh, if we're smart. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, Ed, you know, arguably that's what the Norwegians have been doing with their sovereign wealth fund um, for a long time, right? Um, is actually taking their oil and gas revenue and actually putting that into so now things like penetration of electric vehicles into Norway, uh, uh, perhaps the highest in the world, or maybe uh, uh, certainly in the top five. Um, and absolutely, that's true. And um, it's kind of it's it's hard in some ways. It's almost a paradox that uh, LNG and coal at the moment are uh, delivering Australia huge uh, economic benefits. Um, because partly driven by uh, an, eco- uh, an energy crisis, a very real energy crisis in Europe, um, but also that in the transition, it's not a case of switching off, uh, you know, closing down the global energy system for a couple of years, and then you know we'll be back we'll be back back in twenty twenty five. Just keep yourselves busy. We're going to now build something from scratch, right? Uh, yeah. You, we need done. coal and we need gas, right? I mean, I still drive my car. I still need petrol. Uh, will my next car be an electric vehicle? Sure. Um, have I been able to make uh, the case for getting an electric vehicle yet? Probably not. Um, I have solar panels on my roof. Um, I haven't been able to make a case for having a battery. Um, once uh, I can use an electric vehicle um, as uh, the battery in an electric vehicle for my uh, electricity needs when, this, when my solar panels aren't working, um, that would be fantastic, right? So, so a transition is never going to be smooth. It's not a, it's not a simple pathway, step by step by step. Um, and part of the reason I think that coal and gas are so uh, uh, high in demand at the moment is because the the investment in those sectors, in exploration um, and in development and construction of mines and the infrastructure and wells and the infrastructure, is likely to be on the decline. Mm. Um, so um, it's not likely that we're going to um, uh, transition smoothly from one to the other. Uh, we yeah. need to actually be building up uh, the renewables and the low emission alternatives, but we also have to be pragmatically understanding that people need energy. Um, people will freeze to death in Europe without gas, right? Uh, that that's That's absolutely true. Um, people in... Developing countries, as I saw 20 years ago on a community leadership program in India, um, uh, girls won't be able to uh, to to uh, be taught in the evening and to get a, an education uh, without electricity. Without, uh, uh, I remember visiting a, a, a school that had a single light bulb and a whole bunch of uh, girls uh, reading and writing around that in a in a in a village. Yeah. Um, during the day, they're working in the fields. Um, energy is something I think in Australia we take for granted. Um, I think we've taken it for granted to such a point of view that we don't actually understand that energy security 
um, is absolutely vital. And energy is a key driver of economic development. Uh, without energy, there's not much you can do. Well, you raise a good point about it being taken for granted. I, I, um, I, I've just come back from annual leave, and uh, during my annual leave, I spoke to several of my friends and had a chance to catch up with long friends, most of whom are business people. And I was surprised. I haven't caught up with them for a while. I was surprised to hear them say that they didn't know anything about hydrogen. They didn't think that it was the coming thing. Uh, All the talk was about um, whether or not batteries in cars are going to cause a a rubbish problem, whether or not solar and wind is going to be any good. Uh, And I mentioned hydrogen, and they all sort of discounted it as saying it's not part of the equation. And yet you've spent the last few years at least in the hydrogen situation where where are we with hydrogen in australia um and is it going to be part of our economy in the future um it's part of our economy now um and but it's but it's sure it's been around for a long time hasn't it but as an energy source i guess well yes absolutely so uh, and there are questions around that um in certain applications for but um i guess where i was i was a nearer the industry growth center for uh energy resources um i've got I started, I completed my Master's of Sustainable Development 19 years ago and worked as a sustainability consultant. Um, but you're right, it's very much more about the economic opportunity now. And actually, if, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in the market is a great way of, of identifying and developing value and, and, and dispersing value, right? So it's a great uh, distribution mechanism. Um, when I started at NERA, I came into it. Um, I didn't, I, I worked across industries, as you know, and I looked at it and went, and even today, 98% of Australia's energy resources is coal, oil, and gas. Uh, about 2% is renewables. And, and I looked at it and kind of went, how, how is this the case? Um, and it's partly because we're an exporter. Now, coal, oil, and gas have had decades of, uh, of, of development of, of standards, of carriers, of infrastructure uh, that actually allows you to shift those resources from where they're mined or drilled um, into where they're used. And that's around the world, right? About Apparently about 40% of global maritime activity is in coal, oil, and gas. Um, so it's a very mature industry. When you look at renewables and you particularly look at solar, um, it doesn't, the sun doesn't shine at night. I mean, that's obviously a, a, an argument that a lot of people put up against. Um, uh, against solar, but that's that's true. Um, but how do you so how do you time and place shift renewables? It's not as easy as putting it onto a coal train to a uh, to a port, putting it on the uh, you know at the at the port, waiting for the next um, uh, the next bulk carrier to come along, and uh, and and putting it on the bulk carrier and sending it off to somewhere else where they put it on a, uh, a, a in a big stack. And then they put it into a coal-fired power station, for example. Um, we haven't got that yet with renewables. Um, and what we're needing to do is actually build that up. But because going back to that 58 million petajoules, Australia's got a huge opportunity. We've got the ingredients. We've got the sun. We've got the wind. We've got wave. We've got tidal. Uh, we've got some, um, some biomass. And we've got other resources. Uh, but we really do need to fundamentally think about the value chain and how we efficiently and at scale, can get them not just to domestic markets, but to global markets. 
Um, and so that was where hydrogen came in because hydrogen and green hydrogen in particular um, is effectively a way of using a chemical to carry those green electrons from solar or wind. Um, so you, uh, for uh, people will be aware of electrolysis, but effectively you take water, uh, you passed electricity through it, um, and you capture the hydrogen. That hydrogen then becomes a carrier of energy that you can burn that hydrogen, and all you end up with is water vapor. So there are no emissions within that within that process. Now, it's not the most efficient process, um, certainly not as efficient as using those renewable uh, electrons directly. So there will be some applications where it will be viable, but not all applications. Um, in some applications, you will want to use the direct electrons. Let's, let's come back to the, the applications in, in, in one second. I'm just going to pick up something that you said before. We have, you know, people accept what is as being the best, you know, the way we live is the right way of doing it. But there's a certain madness about the idea that we have to dig up coal, ship it to a port, put it on a ship, ship it across the country, burn it, and then say, okay, we need some more. So you dig up more. And we've been doing it for 200 years. And people say that's a better system than any other system we could possibly come up with. It, it, it seems to me that we need to start changing the discussion and saying renewable is a much more is a much better system. As a supply chain person, to me, a one-way system that's just not renewable, not not we can't use ever again, just doesn't make any sense. And yet we're locked into this paradigm, aren't we? Do we need to sell the idea of of what you're saying a bit better? Is that the is that the problem? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and there's a few people that are now starting to talk about what, what I'd call the industrialization of renewables. Um, so if you take a coal deposit, for example, um, you've worked around the mining industry so far. I've been out to lots of mines across Australia. Um, I've worked with mining companies on technologies and, um, and development. Huge costs, um, but they take a spot, uh, they explore it, they develop it, um, uh, maybe it's got 30 years, maybe it's got 50 years. They put in a coal wash plant, they put in the rail infrastructure, um, they put all that in. Now, if you took solar that same way um, and you said, okay, here's a piece of land, maybe it's 10,000 square meters, um, we're going to develop that as a solar deposit. Now, it's not a deposit, right? <laughs> but if, yeah. you, if you took that kind of mining thinking to it and you said, but instead of the resource being there for 30 to 50 years, that solar resource is going to be there for probably more. It's, there's at least a billion years left in the sun, I understand, right? Um, yeah, so, give or take. So you can set up the infrastructure. And yes, those solar panels will need to be recycled. Uh, yes, the plant and the like will need to be refreshed and recycled. Um, but you've actually now got a permanent mine. You've got a permanent resource um, to set up the infrastructure and keep mining it, right? That sun shines, and whether we capture it or not, the sun comes up the next morning um, and gives us, uh, gives us some more as well. It's reasonably predictable. Um, it's not perfect, but what it does need is storage because it's not always there, and what it does need is ways of moving it around um, uh, so that it can be used where it's required for a whole range of purposes. But, but it's kind of taking that mining approach that Australia has done so well and looking at renewables in a similar way because it brings the scale to it, but it brings the business case to it as well. Um, mm. 
And in, in a lot of cases, in solar particularly, we've moved from rooftop solar systems to kind of rooftop systems, but ground mounted in solar farms. Uh, this next way really does require uh, clever thinkers about how do you capture gigawatts, maybe even terawatts of solar, um, and how do you invest in that and how do you move it around in a way that's environmentally uh, uh, friendly, um, economically astute, um, and also will have the environmental and net zero benefits uh, that we want uh, renewables to provide. It's a whole new way of thinking, isn't it? But it's not that new. It's been around for a long time. It's just now we're starting to see it from a true business model point of view. Let's start looking at it. And uh, I know you've said uh, before that you know energy is a key part of every business. We should not discount it. Uh, let's take a break now, come back on and get a bit more granular about uh, the hydrogen industry and about manufacturing. This is a good chat. Thanks, Paul. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Paul, you're talking uh, before the break uh, uh, of the change to a post-carbon economy is a business opportunity now. There's lots of opportunities everywhere. Uh, so let's talk about that uh, um, a, a bit more. You also sort of mounted the case, I think, quite well that there's plenty of opportunities for us in Australia, not just domestically, but also overseas if we get onto the onto this. Uh, and you're talking uh, about how uh solar wind other renewable sources can create the energy then that gets transferred into hydrogen and hydrogen can be the carrier to become uh, an energy source at, at some stage do you want to just unpack that a little bit more how, how does hydrogen do that is hydrogen a gas or what's the what's what's the what's the source going to be well, look, I mean, hydrogen is an element um it's the lightest element it's the the first element for those that did chemistry um, it's uh, it's well known. It's uh, uh, but it's uh, because it's because of its lightness, because of its smallness, it's pretty difficult to uh, it's pretty difficult to contain. Uh, for dec for decades, probably for centuries, as people have been looking at the benefits of hydrogen um, in it as an energy as an energy source. Um, I think the uh, you know we're saying about hydrogen's already in the economy. It's uh, about a hundred million tons of hydrogen is produced each year globally. Um, most of it goes into the ammonia process. Um, ammonia is used um, uh, in fertilizers, used in explosives, it's used in a whole bunch of other industrial applications. Um, and some hydrogen goes into petrochemical refining as well. It's really important in the refining process. Um, so hydrogen is used, but hydrogen at the moment, uh, about 99% of global hydrogen is produced from methane through something called steam methane reformation. Um, the, the way that I talked about the green hydrogen, the electrolysis way, um, has never really been scaled. It's never been used uh, beyond very small applications. And in fact, in Australia, uh, it, the largest operating electrolyzer is 1.25 megawatts, um, which is not very large at all. 
um, in the Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre, we we envisage potentially as much as a terawatt of electrolysis being required wow. by 2040. That's 800,000 times the size of the existing largest operating electrolyzer in the country. Think big. Um, well, and you, you, we have to think big, but Australia is a country that can think big. It's a big country. Um, we've done some big things. Um, it, uh, we rapidly became the world's largest LNG exporter. Probably about half a trillion dollars of investment was put into that. Mm. Um, we, we know how to do big things. The world uh, looks to Australia. The world uh, is actually is happy to invest in Australia um, in terms of doing big things. But uh, this, this potentially dwarfs a lot of the other things uh, that we have done in the past. Um, and it's also more complex. We won't, we won't see uh, businesses having little electrolyzers at the back converting their solar into, into electricity or hydrogen or something. Well, it, it, it's likely, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to get into a technology argument because at the moment I think we need to have pretty much everything on the table. Uh, right. we've, got this, we've got this urgent challenge, uh, but it's a massive opportunity. Um, and what I think part of the problem is, is that we often have our favoured technologies and we go, mm. this is going to be the answer. You know, uh, what do they say? If, every, if, if what you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a, a, nail, a nail or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we, 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 part of our uh, toxic climate change energy debate that we've had in Australia has meant that we've created these kind of camps that throw rocks at each other. Mm. Um, and really what we need is all hands on deck. Uh, to actually develop that. Now, there, there are people working on small-scale hydrogen applications. Um, there are uh, some people will be looking at uh, lithium-ion battery storage for those electrons. Uh, some people will be looking at hydrogen in some applications in some regions in some seasons. Um, hydrogen might be a better candidate, um, but it's, uh, it, it really is not going to be a simple case of uh, yes or no between battery electric and fuel cell electric uh, using hydrogen for applications in every case. Um, and it sounds like a real politician's answer, James, um, but we're really early on in this. Hydrogen, its, uh, its ability to uh, deliver uh, has not yet really been proven at scale. You're both an influencer but also an implementer. You're a businessman as well as a um um, you know, a, a, a policy and influencer. What do business think about this? How do, how do we get our head around what we should be doing over the next five years? If we're in a race to decarbonise, where does hydrogen or where does renewable energy sit in my thinking? Well, I think the the most important part is is the emission side of it, right? So, regardless of what we're looking at around energy now. Uh, we need to be testing it against, is this the best path for decarbonisation? Is this the lowest, most efficient, safest, um, most effective way of reducing emissions? Um, and not get caught up too much in, uh, is it hydrogen? Is it, uh, is it direct electrification? Is it batteries? Um, is it you know, something else? Um, the, the important thing is to really look at what's my emissions footprint? Uh, what's my supply chain's emissions footprint? Um, what's my energy use? And also my materials. My materials might be embedded with a lot of emissions too. Um, things like steel, 
uh, things like fertilizer, um, things like plastics, um, have often all come from the, the so-called fossil fuel industries, right? Um, it's not just about energy in a barrel of oil. There's a lot of materials and a lot of inputs to materials in a barrel of oil uh, that don't come out of the Bowser at the service station um, into your car. And so partly that's an education as well um, about what that's about. But um, just, just quickly, uh, I think you always start with energy, with, uh, energy efficiency. Um, it's probably the less sexy part of the discussion. Everyone likes a new bit of technology, a new bit of kit. Um, but energy efficiency, am I, am I using too much energy for what I'm trying to achieve? Is there wastage? Where's the wastage? Um, do I have inefficient technology or inefficient processes? Um, is there a lot of waste in my business which I can eliminate, which will give me an immediate cost reduction? Um, and, and I know that people that uh, work in the sort of electricity brokering industry will even tell you that the way that uh, you start your machinery in the morning uh, might be costing you more on your electricity bill and actually uh, means that you've got uh, an inefficient way of uh, running your business. So, you know, seeking out people and programs that can help you. There's a lot of free programs around offered by industry associations and by government. Um, to actually help you almost do an audit of that. But really understanding, I think, where you're at uh, from your own perspective and then looking across your supply chain, looking across your industry, working out what others are doing, uh, how you can work with others, but actually also where the opportunities are. There are trillions of dollars that will be poured into uh, the energy sector over the next you know, 20, 30 years, um, hundreds of trillions of dollars. I know that when we were working together years ago uh, on that uh, business improvement program, uh, we were saying to people then, uh, put sensors on all your machines. And we had stories of people coming back to us saying, I discovered that my machines were turning on at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning for no particular reason. It was just the way they got set up 20 years ago. And it was just wasting a huge amount of my money. <laughs> I was spending yep. money on this stuff. Why not putting... Um, uh, putting sensors on. So, yeah, I mean, energy yeah. efficiency makes sense. Let's talk about manufacturing, Paul. Um, you mentioned we're going to have to sort of probably build a big new economy, really. We're going to have to move from the from carbon to, to renewable. Well, for that, there's a bill involved. How's manufacturing in Australia looking? Are we going to be able to handle that? Are we ready? What do we need to do? The opportunity for manufacturing is huge. And actually, I think it's always... Um, um, uh, you, you, you've probably seen this as well, but over the decades, I've heard the death of manufacturing uh, so many times, but actually manufacturing in Australia. I think we went to um, a few funerals, uh, didn't we? <laughs> well, well, I'm sure, but, I've, uh, but, but manufacturing, as far as I can see, is still pretty healthy in Australia, right? There are certain types of manufacturing that we've lost. We've certainly lost uh, the automotive assembly industry. Uh, there's still lots of component manufacturers in Australia that export directly. Um, and we have we lost a lot in the textiles, clothing, and footwear uh, industry, uh, but not at the fashion end, uh, more at the uh, 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 the white socks and jocks end uh, of the market. Um, so the sort of volume, low cost, uh, low value manufacturing, in, in a lot of cases, we lost. Um, but Australia actually has a very proud manufacturing sector, uh, a lot of capability. But the amount of things that we're going to need to manufacture. Um, is going to require more skills, more workforce, um, even with greater automation as well. 
So automation and robotics is going to be a friend to manufacturers, um, and it's going to be a friend to manufacturing workers. Um, uh, it's not a threat. Um, what I'm loving to see is that uh, uh, we're moving from people talking about robots to cobots. Um, and in fact, there's a, a, a recent launch in, in Queensland. It was a, a cobot co- cohabiting with, um, with humans. Co-working, yeah. yeah. Because um, they're working with um, the the whole idea of robots to, is not not to be feared that they're going to come in and take your job. Um, they might come in and take your job if you're doing something that's dirty, dangerous, or dull. Um, but what it does do is allow people to move into higher value positions where they're not in harm's way. Um, and the 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 importance of now moving robots to be able to work with humans to be assistive. Uh, to actually be in a warehouse, for example, and you're actually uh, having a robot that's actually helping you lift heavy things that you used to have to do or to be positioned in a way uh, that might be a bit risky um, and be able to do that for you and work with you so that they actually become co-workers um, with you and they do the things you don't want to do, uh, which is always the best type of teamwork anyway, right? When you've got people around you that do the things that either you're not very good at or you don't really like doing. Um, oh, I, I always looking, like it when you're doing the stuff I don't want to do, Paul. That's always good. Yeah. When people talk about robots, I say, remember, like when I was growing up, you, if you went through a tollway, you had to slam a dollar coin into someone's poor hand uh, and, the, and the, 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 the poor person just got their hand crushed over time. And at the beginning and the end of each shift, they had to run across 16 lanes to get, <laughs> to get off the highway. Uh, it was a dumb job that was dangerous and it damaged your, your hand there was no and you're standing up all day there's absolutely nothing good about it and then, now we've got tollways it's a much better system and those people are doing a better job whoever they are they're no longer standing there they've got a better job uh, and i think that's the way to see robots robots take away the the bad the dumb the dangerous jobs yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there wouldn't be a business, there'd be hardly a business in Australia, James, that I talk to. Um, I can't think of one in the last six months at least uh, that has said critical worker shortages aren't affecting their business and their ability yeah. to grow and potentially their ability to stay open. Um, because, as you know, with a supply chain, and this has become to the fore in the, in the pandemic, it doesn't matter how good your part of the supply chain is. But if there are gaps anywhere else, whether it's uh, uh, the provision of of chips or or whether it's uh, a truck driver that can bring something in or something happening at the port or uh, a a flood that goes through an agricultural region and now you can't get potatoes, whatever it is, right? Um, Everything else grinds to a halt along that supply chain. And so the precariousness nature of that is so important that bringing some stability into that, um, robots are not replacing workers anytime soon. We've got, what, 3% unemployment in Australia. Uh, We've got an aging population. Um, We've got what I'm seeing, a whole bunch of people wanting to go to do more part-time work um, and and potentially more iterant work. Um, Then, you know, this is not going to change for business very soon. So looking at how you might be able to automate, how you might be able to uh, uh, roboticize, I think that's a word, um, <laughs> and you might also be able to outsource and work in a cooperative way 
with other partners and other organizations within your supply chain, who at some point you might have seen as competitors. And I think that was one of the things that I really enjoyed working with you on a decade ago when we were at Enterprise Connect, was really looking at those cooperative arrangements where businesses could come together um, and maximize uh, their impact, uh, focus on the things they're strong at, and also reduce the risks of supply chain disruption and other disruption or winning or losing work, it was able to smooth out uh, some of that process. Yeah, I think in Australia, we're slowly getting to the point where we're working much more cooperative together. I do a lot of work in defence, as you know, in the defence supply chain of the tier two and tier three, we're learning to work together so that uh, we can, we can you know, uh, achieve big things by working together. There's no other way of looking at it. It's been a good chat. We've talked about... Um, uh, a new way of businesses looking at renewables. You've explained renewables really well. Good chat about hydrogen, energy efficiency. It was really important case you put forward there. And then this idea that manufacturing is going to need a lot of people, but also a lot of technology. Uh, and we need to, if we are going to be successful in manufacturing in Australia, and we are, the advanced manufacturing is very good in Australia, but in order for us to keep getting better, we need to keep building our skills and our understanding of automation. I said at the start, just to wrap this up, I said at the start that you were involved in entrepreneurship without notice. Do you want to just talk about that? What's, what's that about, just to finish up? Um, it's a form of entrepreneurship, but it's termed entrepreneurship because it happens inside organisations. So the typical, uh, uh, the typical profile of an entrepreneur is uh, a, a person who starts something and runs with something, usually a startup. Um, it's their business. They're often the CEO. They're the founder. Um, they are the entrepreneur. Um, what organizations, what have organizations have found um, and what organizations I think are slowly starting to realize is that entrepreneurial thinking inside your organization is extremely valuable. And particularly when we look at the ambiguity and the uncertainty ahead, uh, particularly when we start looking at uh, worker shortages, supply chain disruptions, um, and the, the inherent risks of running a business, that having people inside your business that think entrepreneurially um, but enjoy working inside an organisation with the resources and the team and being part of something bigger is a really crucial element for a business. Now, why this hasn't always worked um, is that, you know, when I've worked with businesses, they're often we've often taken them to be quite hierarchical, um, some command and control kind of. Um, there's been a sense that the founder, the CEO, the executive team, the chair has all the answers. Um, often that's a veneer, um, a psychological veneer of uh, imposter syndrome, um, that I got to run this 100-person business now. Um, I'm expected to know all the answers. Um, and if I don't, I'll look vulnerable. I'll look like I shouldn't be in this role um, and I'll be found out. Um, what we, uh, what entrepreneurs are is you, you then need a different kind of organisation, which is less command and control, much more distributed leadership, much more open to new ideas and potentially allowing people inside your organisation to run with ideas the way entrepreneurs would in their own business, but you keep them within the business. Uh, that can have huge value uh, for an, uh, an organization to actually nurture and develop and keep these entrepreneurs inside their organization. 
Um, otherwise, they often will leave um, and they'll go to, they'll either set up something themselves or they'll go to a competitor or another organization. Um, so, uh, so it's part of the talent equation, but it's also a shift in management style in Australia, which is less project hierarchical command and control, much more distributed, much more, much more sort of initiative based, um, and also bringing a lot more trust into the organization as well, where you're trusting people, uh, to, uh, to, to be developing and, and delivering value, uh, uh, to the organization, but potentially you're not uh, micromanaging what they're actually doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it's a shift in management style, I think, and thinking. I, uh, I've been around for a long time. I've done a lot of things. A little while ago, uh, I was talking about doing something within AI Group, and one of the uh, senior managers here said, that's very entrepreneurial of you. And I, I, it was one of the nicest things someone had said to me for, for a long time. It's a really nice compliment to give to another Another worker, uh, another employee in the in the organisation. That's very entrepreneurial of you. You're always busy. Um, I said that you're involved with the uh, Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre bid in just a minute or so. What's all that about, and how do people get involved if they wanted to know more? Yeah, sure. I really appreciate that, James. Um, as you said, uh, we've uh, the rounds open now. Um, it's open for a short period of time. Uh, cooperative Research Centres are a long-standing thirty-year government program to uh, to get industry, government, research community coming together to tackle medium and long-term industry challenges and and uh, uh, and opportunities. Um, I mentioned how embryonic green hydrogen is in Australia, and if we look at how we're going to convert that uh, that renewable energy into uh, molecules, hydrogen molecules that we can use in um, in a whole bunch of applications, potentially including energy and including exports. Um, we are going to really need to bring together a consortium of some of the leading uh, thinkers um, and actors across the supply chain, from electricity to water to regulatory uh, to the manufacturers and technology companies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we are in the process of putting that bit together at the moment. If anyone's really interested, uh, they can certainly reach out to me through, uh, through LinkedIn. Um, but I, uh, you can also visit hydrogencrc.com.au um, and we'll be keeping that up to date. Uh, we are keeping that up to date with uh, who's who, uh, what our program looks like and, and how to get involved. Um, but we, uh, you know, we want to, we, we, I don't want to see with a 30 year career in this kind of thing, I don't want to see Australia miss this opportunity to be a, uh, a world leader um, and to deliver the jobs, the investment. Uh, the revenue and the profitability and tax revenue uh, that's going to secure our future prosperity. You and I could talk and often do talk for hours. We could talk for hours on this. We better not. That's uh, a great summary and a really good chat. So thanks for your time, Paul. The bid was announced uh, or the, the round was announced today. So I appreciate you taking time out of a very busy schedule to, uh, to talk to us. Uh, all the best in 2023 and all the best for the bid. Thanks very much, James, and all the best to uh, to you and your listeners. Always, uh, always love a chat. It's good to have you here. Um, now, look, thanks to uh, to you, our listeners, as Paul says. Before you go, here's a final thought: If you're having difficulties with your apprentices and your traineeships, why not contact AR Group's Apprenticeship and Trainee Centre? With over 15,000 apprentices and trainee placements and 60,000 engaged businesses, AR Group ATC has a track record of success. 
They know that for many employers, choosing an apprenticeship can be a bit like taking a stab in the dark. It's really tough. It's really hard to get it right. AI Group's Apprenticeship and Trainee Centre provide a rigorous selection process to ensure a really good fit for your business. And the way they manage apprenticeships is designed to ensure you get a return. Think of it, and I love this, think of it as a placement that delivers productivity. So if you're looking for a hassle-free apprenticeship and traineeship process, contact AI Group Apprenticeship and Trainee Centre on 1300 761 944. That's 1300 761 944. And I'll talk to you in a fortnight. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.